Good evening. The saga continues. <laughs> Thanks for being here. So, quick announcement before we get started. I am very, very pleased to let you all know that as of about nine minutes ago, the video for part one is now live on YouTube. So, we, big props to Jeff Underwood because we, for the last two weeks, between he and I, we have been back and forth, and I'll just say all of the things happened from a technical bug perspective to get the slide video and the raw footage of me synced up, hooked up, all in HD that didn't look super pixelated, just all the things. And so we were back and forth just about constantly over the last two weeks. We think it's sorted. Part one is up. Part two should be coming out this week because now that we have the process sort of mapped out, fingers crossed, it should be rel relatively smooth sailing <laughs> from here on out. And so that's where we stand. But I know many of you, the audio is, has gone up sort of as you would expect from most of our, the way it does for most of our services. But I know many of you have been wondering about the video. So that's the status. That's where we are. We should be on track now. <laughs> so we will see. We will see. So we are going to continue in our discussion of our nine difficult questions. And tonight is session three out of five. And tonight we are going to be covering two more questions in particular. Tonight will be, how is eternal punishment fair? How is, how is something like hell even remotely fair and, and it doesn't put God in a place where he's just... He's not just, right? And then we are also going to uh, discuss why God lets a child die. And so those are the two questions on deck. And I said before we, when we, I think before we even started this, that the first three weeks are heavy. We're going through a valley. But starting next week, and thank you for sticking with it, you've been, this is the hard stuff. Starting next week, we're going to turn a very significant corner, and we're going to start to climb out of the valley, and we're going to start to talk about how all of this is used and, and is helpful and ultimately will, will get us to where God wants us all to be. And so that's, that's where we're going. So, show of hands, who was able to access and do the pre-work? I call it homework super loosely. All right, cool. Fair share of you. Awesome. So for... The rest of you, I want you to maybe try and get with someone who you saw had their hand raised. And if not, it's not a huge deal. But uh, we're going to spend some time. We're going to start increasing the amount of, well, work that you all are going to do. And so if you're following along with this in, in the video later, like this would be the time you can do your discussion as well. But what I want us to do is to spend a couple minutes not just talking about the, the homework and the pre-work and all that. If you did, then please make that part of the discussion. But I'm going to give you several minutes. I'd like you to get into groups of two, three, four, something relatively small like that. And I want you to recap, or if this is your first week, get with someone and kind of get downloaded on where we've been. So specifically, last week, we covered two other questions. And they were, why do bad things happen to good people? And our second question was, what about those who never hear the gospel? So those are the two questions from last week. 
Like I said, I'll give you a couple minutes to get with the group, discuss it. What do you remember? What were the sort of the big, broad ways that we addressed these questions or the answers? How would you, how would you sum that up in your own words, so on and so forth? So let's get, let's get discussing. Go for it. <laughs>
All right. Here, lots of good discussions still going. Thanks for letting me finish my coffee, by the way. That was the whole, that was the whole reason for that in the first place. Now, uh, so, cool. So let's do a little bit of recap. I'm gonna have you, we'll just do this popcorn style. We're not gonna stand on formality and make anyone raise hands or anything like that. I mean, we are in church, but not, the, not that kind of raising your hands. So last week, again, we, we talked about these questions. So first off, Throw it out at me. Why do bad things happen to good people? No one is good, not even one. Do we have anything to add? Yes. Yeah, right? Why do good things happen to bad people? Because the truth is, there are no good people. There are no good people. And we looked at plenty of evidence to solidify that point. And, and to be frank, we could have spent days and days and days and days going through more and more evidence. There's plenty of there. The, the editing process to get it down to that was something, I'll just say. And there were lots that was left out just because, frankly, I, I didn't want this to be something that was just done for shock value. But there's, there was certainly more. And yes, the, I mean, no one has ever asked the question why bad things happen to bad people. But if that's what we are, if, if no one is good. And actually, while we're on this topic, so why aren't people worse than they could be? Consequences. Consequences, right? Yeah, and, and conscience, certainly. But conscience can be seared, especially if you are in a pattern of, of willful disobedience, of ignoring what's, a, what's there. And, and so, yeah, I mean, the... the it would sure seem to say that most people are certainly not as bad as they could be, but that's not necessarily because they're good people. It's because they're pragmatic and they don't want to deal with the, the consequences of some of those decisions. So what about those who never hear the gospel? What's the, what's the big takeaway there? Anyone? God already knows who's going to uh, come to him or not. Yeah. Yeah, God... Sure, yeah. Right. Yeah, God will make himself known. God has made himself known, according to Romans 1. And people are responsible for responding to the light that they have been given or not. And so we looked at examples in Scripture from both sides of this, but just the principle being that God will ensure that those who would repent if they heard, will in fact hear. And so for those who haven't heard, and we looked at passages like Acts 17, we looked at passages where uh, Jesus in, in Matthew talks about how he, was, he wanted to, to gather Jerusalem to himself, but they were not willing. That this, this idea that for those who don't hear, it sure seems like uh, it, maybe it wouldn't have made a difference. That if God knows that they will repent, He'll make sure that they hear. And we see this with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We see this uh, with Jonah and the Ninevites. God makes sure that Jonah gets there because he knows what the response is going to be. He drags Jonah kicking and screaming there, but it's because he knows what the response is going to be. And so God will make sure that people who will repent will hear. Once again, our standard disclaimer, we are still in the midst of some difficult topics. And so as always, this is a 
Hard PG-13, we're going to talk about some things tonight that will be, again, momentarily uncomfortable, but we're going somewhere with all of it. And so with that in mind, let's dive in. So our first question for tonight, how is eternal punishment fair? And this is a question, as I've said before, that, that certainly comes up a lot. It's one that is asked often because from our perspective, and I've said it myself, that you know, if you look at someone's life, you look at even the worst people who've ever lived, they've only done so many bad things, right? The, I mean, our lives are finite. We can only sin so much. So you're telling me that, that you're all good and all loving God would, would torture someone forever? No matter how bad they've been, that just doesn't, the punishment does not seem to fit the crime, right? Now, that's certainly part of what we're going to talk about. But another aspect to consider in, in our, and I use that term collectively, but in our Christian efforts to really try to drive home that hell is not a place you want to be, there is, I think, and has been a tendency to make hell out to be, if possible, worse than it actually is. Because again, if we're going to use Scripture as our standard, if we're going to stay anchored in Scripture, and we should, we're going to look at that in a few minutes, it, I think that we can and we have made hell out to be worse than it is, or at least we've said things about it that you're going to have a hard time grounding in Scripture. And I'll give you three examples. Not surprisingly all from preachers and evangelists <laughs> uh, through the years. We'll look first at Charles Spurgeon. He said this, in fire exactly like that which we have on earth, the body will lie, asbestos-like, forever unconsumed. All thy veins, roads for the feet of pain to travel on. Every nerve, a string on which the devil shall forever play his diabolical tune of hell's unutterable lament. I mean, A plus for rhetoric, <laughs> right? Charles Spurgeon certainly had a silver tongue, but we'd have to look at this and be like, well, where exactly is he getting this from, right? Let's look at another. This, this gentleman is, was a, a Catholic priest and child evangelist. I would have hated to have this man in Sunday school. His name was John Furness, spelled with an I, but he became known as Father Furness with an E because he said things like this. There is a boy, a young man. His eyes are burning like two burning coals. Two long flames come out of his ears. Sometimes he opens his mouth and breath of blazing fire rolls out of it. Can you imagine this guy talking to your kids in Sunday school? But listen, there's a sound just like that of a kettle boiling. Is it really a kettle boiling? No. Then what is it? Hear what it is. It is the blood boiling in the scalding veins of that boy. The brain is boiling and bubbling in his head. The marrow is boiling in his bones. Child evangelist, this man. Good grief, dude. Right? One more, and again, a very well-known preacher from, in American history anyway, would be Jonathan Edwards, famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He's, he wrote this. The body will be full of torment, as full as it can hold, and every part of it will be full of torment. They shall be in extreme pain, every joint of them, every nerve shall be full of inexpressible torment. They shall be tormented even to their fingers' ends, their hearts and their bowels and their heads, and their eyes and their tongues, and their hands and their feet will be filled with the fierceness of God's wrath. This is taught us in many scriptures. 
Would anyone like to offer one of the scriptures where this is taught? I, I don't know where he's getting this from. But you see the theme here, right, of that, well, is, is, it, is it a, maybe this is an ends justify the means, like is it okay to scare people into repentance? I certainly think that if you really take the, the doctrine of hell seriously, it should frighten you. And I certainly also think that if you decide that maybe uh, pursuing God is worthwhile, even at first because you don't want to go there, I also think that that's perfectly worthwhile. That's acceptable. As long as you don't stay there, that's not the whole basis of your faith. But again, as we see here, this isn't, this isn't a scriptural basis for hell. You don't find these kinds of descriptions anywhere in the Bible. What we do find is a description of hell, and it's actually the, the longest description of hell that we get in the Bible, and it comes from Jesus. And it comes in the form of a parable in Luke 16. And for those of you who've studied parables or read about parables, yes, I am aware, too, that you know, there, there's this sort of conventional wisdom that you really shouldn't draw too much theology from a parable. And I would just say, in this case, while there are times where certainly that's true, this is our Lord's most extended explanation or, or discussion of hell. So I think it bears some careful examination because he says some very interesting things here that I think are, are worth taking note. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read this passage to us all as it appears on the screen. It's Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. And Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, and in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg of you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now again, there are some points, I think, that are very noteworthy just in the details of how Jesus describes this. Most certainly, the rich man is in torment. It specifically says, in torment, he says. He was in anguish in these flames. Okay, This was not a comfortable experience for him. He was not glad to be there. And he was certainly in pain. But it's also interesting, if we take what is being said here about this conversation with any seriousness at all, 
that there's also four things we need to recognize about the rich man, despite his being in, in torment, despite his being in anguish and in all this pain. And the first would be that, yeah, he was in pain, but he was able to speak. How many of you have had experienced pain, I mean, from a, a, a stubbed toe, a broken bone, a, a chipped tooth, something that was so painful that it took your breath away? Has anyone ever experienced pain like that? Yeah, okay. And that's, those are things that we can experience here. Well, if that is, if it's in every joint, in every nerve, so far as that nerve can hold full of pain, you're not, this rich man is not having a conversation. If that's the kind of pain we're talking about, the kind that would make you pass out if you could, right? There is a level of pain that goes beyond what, what he seems to be experiencing. He's also in pain, but he's able to make requests. He's asking Abraham four things to help you know, mitigate this pain, but he, he's able to ask that. Not only that, but when it comes to this diatribe with Abraham, he is able to form arguments and to lodge rebuttals, right? He's doing point-counterpoint with Abraham over the exact nature of, of how this ought to work and what could happen and you know, what, what might happen on behalf of his other family and things like this. He's certainly in pain. He's certainly in torment. He's certainly in anguish. But it's interesting to note that he's also doing all these things as well. But the key question that I feel like we, we really need to ask as a result of this, if we look at the passage carefully, is yes, he's in pain. Yes, he's in hell. He's in all these things. But was he any different? Was he any different? Was the fact that he was there, had he changed at all from who he was before he died? And I want us to go back and look at some specific examples from this passage. You'll notice that specifically with regard to Lazarus, he just has no respect for Lazarus at all, even after he's died. Send Lazarus to cool my tongue. Lazarus lived a horrible life by our standards. He had nothing to show for it in his earthly existence. And he is finally in heaven. And this guy wants him to, to leave that place. That's the, the only comfort he's really ever known in his existence. And to, to be his errand boy. To come make him feel better. Right? Send Lazarus out of heaven. I don't care what Lazarus is doing. I don't care if this is inconvenient for him. I need him to go get me some water. And if you can't do that, well, then send Lazarus to my house, right? Again, I don't care where he is. I don't care what he's got going on right now. I have a need of him. He still looks at Lazarus the same way that he did when they were both alive, as beneath him, as a tool uh, to be used by him, right? And even with Abraham, if you look at his conversation, you, uh, you know, we don't get tone. We don't get Jesus' tone here. But based on the rest of the context here, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say that this rich man here has some you know, deep-seated respect for Abraham, that this is, that this, you know, he, he's disagreeing with Abraham. Abraham's telling him, here's the way it is. And he's like, mm, no, no, I think it should be this way, Abraham. And, you know, these, these uses of respectful terms, I, I mean, again, you can't read it this way definitively, but it would be very easy to understand that he's, he's probably sucking up here a little bit, buttering Abraham up to trying to get him to do what he wants him to do. Again, not the inspired commentary on this, but I'm just saying if you look at the rest of the context, this dude isn't any different. He's not any different. 
So the bigger question is, if this is, what, if this is how Jesus conceived of heaven and hell and some of these principles in his most extended teaching on the topic, we ought to ask a question as a follow-up to this, and that would be, so will anybody be different? I mean, if the rich man is sort of our, our stand-in for understanding the, the, the citizens of hell, will anyone be any different? Well, let's look at a couple other passages that talk about people's attitude as they either are nearing their life or, or about to die, and they understand what's going on. We see this in Revelation. During the, the plagues and the judgments and the wrath of God that's being poured out on people. And again, they're not dead yet. They're not in hell, but... They're dying, and in the passage says, they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They understand that God's in control of all this, and that if God wanted, he could take it away. They understand who's, who's got this and why this is happening. They did not repent or give him glory. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. They're in extraordinary pain, and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. In Revelation 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They know, they know the score. And if the score is repent or deal and live in this pain, they'll take the pain. Now, we could say, okay, well, this is, this is, you know, exaggerated language. It's hyperbole. This is revelation after all. All kinds of crazy stuff's going on in revelation. Do people really have these kinds of attitudes? I'll give you some examples. John Stuart Mill, who was actually very influential and in part of the founding of this country, he was a very well-known philosopher, and he, he did a lot of writing on all kinds of different topics. Uh, he said this in, in response to just this whole idea of, of repentance. Whatever power such a being may have over me, there is one thing which he shall not do. He shall not compel me to worship him. I will call no being good who is not what I mean when I apply that epithet to my fellow creatures. And if such a being can sentence me to hell for not so calling him, to hell I will go. I'll, if that's the score, I'll go to hell. Sign me up. In a, in a, actually, I was doing some research for this, and I stumbled across a, a forum, <laughs> which is always a great place to be on the Internet. And they were discussing some of these questions, and there was some back and forth with some, some Christians and some atheists. And one of the users, he wrote this. There's no reason to love such a God. He is merely be, to be obeyed and feared. But love such a God? Never. He's barbaric and undeserving of my praise. There is no relationship with him. He's a devil. And that's why I reject such a God. He is worse than the worst monster we have ever known or read about on earth. He's an evil thug. This is how he sees God, the God of the Bible. Episcopal Bishop, John Shelby Spong writes, A literal Bible presents me with far more problems than assets. It offers me a God I cannot respect, much less worship, a deity whose needs and prejudices are at least as large as my own. I meet in a literal understanding of Scripture a God who is simply not viable. And what the mind cannot believe, the heart 
can finally never adore. How do you want this guy leading your church? He doesn't even believe the Bible is to be taken literally. So, I mean, how does he interpret it? One more, we all know this gentleman, Mark Twain, writing to his wife about, I mean, he was sort of a deist. He believed that a God exists, but he did not believe in the God of the Bible, and you'll see that here. I'm plenty safe enough in his hands. I'm not in any danger from that kind of a deity. The one I want to keep out of the reach of is the caricature of him, which one finds in the Bible. We, that one and I, could never respect one another, never get along together. I have met his superior a hundred times. In fact, I amount to that myself. Let's fast forward and bring it a little bit more up to date. We've probably all heard this song. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. First stanza of that song. Here's the last stanza. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. One more. This is real recent. Within the last month, this music video premiered at number one on trending on YouTube when it hit. And yeah, this is a screenshot from the music video. How, how many of you even heard, I know the teens will, how many of you even heard of Billie Eilish? Okay, right now, one of her songs is number five on the Billboard Top 100. She's kind of a big deal in our culture right now. She's 17. She's written about, oh gosh, 20 like Top 100 songs. Like she's, she's killing it in the music industry right now. Her, one of her latest songs that premiered is called All the Good Girls Go to Hell. And in the music video, she's depicted as a fallen angel who's sort of basically mocking the whole thing. And the, the, the rest of the lyrics are, well, they're worth a read. I wouldn't necessarily listen to the song, but they're worth a read. But this is how the song starts. My Lucifer is lonely. Standing there, killing time, can't commit to anything but a crime. Peter's on vacation, an open invitation. Animals evidence, pearly gates look more like a picket fence. Once you get inside them, got friends but can't invite them. In other words, I, heaven doesn't seem all that appealing to me. And the song basically is going, I'd rather go to hell. And that's where my friends will be, right? So we get all this imagery of people over and over and over again just rejecting, rejecting uh, and saying, well, listen, I don't really even care if hell's real. Like, I'll go there if that's, if that's the choice that you give me. So someone who did a lyric analysis of this uh, music video and, and the song, they actually wrote this. And I thought it was worthwhile. It seemed pretty good to me. Billy spins the idea of good and evil while playing with biblical imagery of judgment and eternal damnation and salvation. Traditionally, those that find salvation through Jesus Christ are rewarded with eternal life in heaven through Christianity. However, Billy praises the kind of people who don't and who end up in hell instead. From her perspective, while maybe not judged to be morally good, they are indeed the best kind of people. Well, if we're not judging on moral goodness, then what kind of people are they? I mean, like... I don't, I don't really understand that. Obviously, there's a lot of misconceptions. It certainly seems like if you look at the video and read the lyrics, she has a particular flavor of Christianity in mind, namely Roman Catholicism. But all that aside is there's a very clear understanding of what sort of is at stake from the Christian perspective. And very clearly, people over and over again are saying, if that's the choice, no thanks, I'll take hell. 
I want us to understand that what this kind of boils down to, <laughs> information is not the problem. This is not a problem of information. And this is where we got to last week with the fate of the unevangelized. It, God is not on the hook for making sure everyone gets a gospel presentation if God understands that information ultimately isn't really the problem here. If, someone, if someone's lacking information and that would make the difference for them, I'll make sure that they get that information. But just soak in this picture for a second. There's a big old sign right there. It says, danger, do not proceed beyond this point. People are like, yep, cool, thanks. And they walk right past. Like, this is not about not having the right information. This is a volitional problem. The problem isn't here. The problem is here. It's our will. If I have to bend the knee or go to hell, I'll go to hell. So here's the question. Based on what we see about the rich man, based on what we see from all these examples, if this is how people think, on what basis are we supposed to think that that's going to change just because they die? I mean, why would that? So they get to meet God. Okay. I'm sure they've been looking forward to that for a long time. I bet they have a whole bunch of things they want to say to him. Right? But none of them involve admitting that he's Lord and bowing the knee, right? And again, we might say, well, well, maybe, maybe they will, but why? I mean, if, if this is really how they believed before and this is how strongly they feel, why do we think that that would change? I don't really see a good, a good reason that's evidence-based to think that that would change. I mean, we kind of hope that it would. I'm not sure it would, though. So when we get to sort of our original question, how is eternal punishment fair? Well, eternal punishment would be fair, and I think is fair, for the eternally unrepentant. Yes, in this life, people have only sinned a finite amount of time. But if they continue to sin, continue to reject, continue to rebel, continue to go their own way, even, even in the life to come, well, then they're going to continue to sin forever. And if that's the case, then forever is the only fitting punishment for people who are forever rebels. They're not going to stop rebelling just because they die. C.S. Lewis, and this is the first time we're bringing him up, but he's going to make a significant appearance tonight because <laughs> he wrote a little bit on this topic. He wrote... I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. In other words, if, if the only choice is bending the knee or staying here, I'll stay here. He goes on to say, the choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. Dallas Willard wrote about this as well. He's a theologian. He, he said, uh, he put it this way. Thus, no one chooses in the abstract to go to hell or even to be the kind of person who belongs there. But their orientation towards self leads them to become the kind of person for whom away from God is the only place for which they're suited. It's a place they would, in the end, choose for themselves rather than come to humble themselves before God and accept who he is. 
the fundamental fact about them will not be that they are there, but that they have become the kind of people so locked in their own self-worship and denial of God that they cannot want God. In other words, in the end, everyone, everyone gets what they want. Do you realize that? In the end, everyone gets what they want. I mean, not, not completely, maybe. Like, certainly wouldn't be happy or glad that I'm in torment. But if my only two choices, once again, are, are submission and repentance to God and recognition that, that he is Lord and I am not, or, or, or torment in hell, everyone gets their choice of those two. Period. Now, there is a question that we should raise, and that is, so despite this, will hell be the same for everyone? And there are some scriptures we can look to that would suggest otherwise. And I'm not re- going to refer to something, again, that's a foreign context to the Bible, like, like Dante, for instance, to say that, well, there's all this, these layers and hearts. Scripture doesn't tell us about that, but Scripture gives us some hints. Jesus says, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town's. When he's, when he's rebuking them for, not, for witnessing his works, his life and ministry, and not, not repenting. And he also teaches in Luke that the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know but did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, much will be required, and from him to whom much they entrusted much, they will demand the more. It sure seems to indicate that we are going to be judged, that people who go to hell are going to be judged based on the amount of light that they rejected. And certainly people, depending on the time and place and the circumstance of of their birth and the things that they were exposed to, lots of people have received lots of light. Again, Romans 1 says no one has an excuse before God. But simply to say that how much of that you have rejected again and again throughout your life you're going to be held more accountable because you should, have, you should have known. You should have thought about it. So we come to an uncomfortable question that has to do with this because I'm sure that many of us, if not all of us, have friends and family who are not, are not believers. What are we to do with that? Are you saying that if they... If they reject the gospel, they're going to be one of these people, they're going to go to hell, and they're going to be, they're going to be like this forever? Yeah, I am. But there's something that we need to think about as we consider this. Doesn't this guy just look like a sociology professor? <laughs> How many shots did they have to do to get that pipe just right, right? He wrote, is uh, a sociologist, uh, Zygmunt Bauman, even has a name like a professor. He wrote this, a journalist of Lamont interviewed former hijack victims. And we're talking about people who were the victims of uh, an experience where someone came, usually, I think of planes, right? And they found an, enorm, uh, an abnormally high incidence of divorce among couples who jointly, as victims, experienced the hostage experience in agony. Most interviewees told them, the sociologists, that they had never contemplated a divorce before the hijack. But after that experience, way above the statistical average. 
And the sociologists are looking at them, how do we explain this? Well, here's the conclusion they came to as they did interviews with these spouses. During the horrifying episode, they said their eyes opened and they saw their partners in a new light. Ordinary good husbands proved to be selfish creatures caring only for their own stomachs. Daring businessmen displayed disgusting cowardice. Resourceful men of the world fell to pieces and did little except bewailing their imminent perdition. In other words, when the human niceness that we talked about last week is stripped away, when you really boil it down and when people are exposed for who they really are, these are not good people. And these are not people that you're, you would want to spend time with. <laughs> C.S. Lewis uh, also wrote, in the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. You want God to forgive them? They won't be forgiven. They don't want his forgiveness. You want God to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. So when we look at or think about our friends and our family, on the judgment, when every deed, when every thought, when every real motivation and intention of the heart is brought to light, and all the excuses, all the veneer, all of it's wiped away, and we see people for who they really are, I honestly think we won't really recognize them. I don't. I think they will be the kind of people when we finally see them in that light that we would not want to spend an eternity with. It doesn't mean that we won't wish that they had made different choices, but it certainly means that they will not be the kind of people that we would want to live forever in, in, next to and with. And to give us a, a, pers- a different perspective on friends and family, just remember that Jesus said that after his disciples came and said, your mother and your brothers are outside, and Jesus pointed to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Blood family is important, but according to Jesus, they're not your, your real family. I'm looking at my real family. Right? That is a deeper connection. It's going to last forever. And while difficult, in the grand scheme of things, in heaven, which we're going to get into in the next several weeks, you all are the people I'm going to want to spend forever with. Because we will be the kind of people who have been made clean, who have been transformed. We will be new people. We won't be these people, these kinds of people anymore. We're not these people anymore. Now, I'll be the very first to admit that none of what we've just talked about feels good. If you were maybe hoping that this would, this would be sort of packaged into a way where like, okay, I feel all right about hell now. Sorry, sorry to disappoint. None of this feels good. But let me ask you, what if that's the point? What if no one ever was supposed to feel good 
about hell. Right? Maybe this isn't something that we're supposed to be able to wrap our minds around or make work. Maybe this is just terrible. And maybe that's the point, right? Maybe the takeaway that we're supposed to get and that we're supposed to share with other people is that hell is hell. But guess what? You don't have to go there. That's the good news, right? The second death is awful. And you don't have to die it. You can live with God forever in his presence. This is a choice that we get to make. Remember, information isn't the problem. This is a problem of the will. And so I think one of the best things we can do is to pray for people, for friends and family who don't know, that God would work on their will, that he would soften them to the the realization that they are not the Lord of all and that they they need to stop pretending that they are. Time for our break. We're going to take whatever you have, add seven minutes to it, and we will pick up with our next question after that. Welcome back. Thanks for grabbing a seat. We are going to keep on moving here. We're going to take a look at our second question for this evening, which is why does God let a child die? And I'll just say right up front, I know, because I know, I know that Some of you right here in this room, this is a very deeply personal question. And so I would just like to say right up front, before we go any further on this question, why you are asking this question or why someone is asking you this question matters. It matters a great deal. If someone is asking this question from a rational perspective of help me understand how this how this works from a biblical perspective, or what about this? And they're trying to wrap their head around it again from, a, from an intellectual standpoint. Everything we're about to cover, both barrels, fire away, that's fine. But if someone is asking this question, or if you're asking this question, because you or someone you know is in the midst or has just been in the midst of an experience like this, the best response that you can give to that person is what Job's three friends did before they opened their mouths. Shut up and weep with those who weep. It is not wise, and I would say it's not even good, certainly not helpful, to launch into some discourse on these verses over here and here's a possible reason why this could have happened. Stop talking. Stop talking. Just sit with the person in their pain. And that is the most Christ-like thing that you can do in that moment. So, with that said, we're going to approach this question from the other perspective. We're going to approach it as if the question is someone who's just trying to wrap their head around this question from 
from they're, they're trying to integrate this into their biblical theology. They're trying to understand from a rational perspective or what's the Christian perspective on this? What would you answer? And again, sort of tied into what I just said. Part of this too is if, if by this question, why does God let a child die? If by that question, someone means, why did Billy get hit by that drunk driver? Or why did Susie burned to death in that apartment fire? Or why did Timmy get cancer? If we're asking about a specific scenario with a specific child, there is only one honest answer that I, that I can give you. Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not God. I'm not omniscient. I have no idea why this happened. And frankly, neither do you. You don't know. So it's not helpful to quote Romans 8.28 or to appeal to God working in his mysterious ways. It's not helpful. Again, we need to respond as if that's the emotional, that's the emotional question. And the answer is to weep with those who weep. But if we are willing to take a step back and to ask the question or frame it more broadly, more generally, and to ask the question, well, why does God let children die? Then I think we can go somewhere and we can get some traction on this question. But to do that, I'd first like to have you enter with me into a little bit of a thought experiment. I'm going to give you a few minutes, and again, I want you to just get in your groups. Whatever you were in before is fine. You don't have to pair up, but again, relatively small groups. You can have more conversations, the better. Here's the scenario that I want you to discuss in your groups. As a group, you can eliminate tomorrow one cause of child mortality, a a specific disease, uh, a certain accident, a condition, a immoral thing that's done to children that results in their death. I don't, I don't whatever, literally, what, talk about it and decide amongst yourselves as a group, you can eliminate one cause of child mortality. What is it? What is it? Which one do you pick and why? So take a few minutes, talk about it amongst yourselves, and we'll chat.
All right, let's wind down whatever, wherever you happen to be in your conversation. So let's throw some out. What do you come up with? What are you going to eliminate? Abortion? Sure. Why abortion? Numbers? There's certainly a lot. Certainly a lot. Yes, certainly. Yeah, it's prevalent in our society. What else? Any other? Please. Child abuse. Child abuse? Yeah. And why that? Child abuse is, as you said, it's horrific. It certainly is a terrible, terrible way for a child to die, for sure. Any other answers groups had? Please. Cancer? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And why, why that in particular, of all the diseases? Yeah. The quality of the amount of pain and suffering? Yeah. Any, any other different answers? We'll take one more. Yeah. Sure. I mean, they don't have anything to do with that. They're just wrong place, wrong time. I mean, is there any other reason in particular that you, you chose car accidents? It would save, yeah, it would save a lot of people. So, whatever your group decided, and, and by the way, before we move on, and again, if we spent enough time talking with it, about this, maybe, maybe it would come up. But it's interesting to me that no one thinks about uh, dysentery. You know that's the number one killer of children in terms of numbers worldwide, De dehydration from malnutrition, dysentery, things like that. Accidents are in, I think, the top three or four. And I'm just pulling from the, the, I think it's the, either the World Health Organization or the CDC data on child mortality. Not things we would necessarily think of, but kills way, way more, I mean, on a, on a magnitude uh, higher than even something like cancer. Cancer is actually a very relatively statistically small amount of children who, who die from that. Now, all that said, whatever your group came up with, I want you to just hold that in your mind. You can have that tomorrow. No child will ever die from that again. But, and if we'll just use a medical example, but go with me here hypothetically. It's going to require the life of one child in order to make it happen. And let's just use a disease, for example. Let's just say hypothetically that there's one child's been identified who has a abnormal immune response. They're able to fight this thing off naturally with, um, with an amazingly high success rate. But if we're going to make sure everyone is able to, to become you know, safe from this disease, we're going to need all the blood, all the marrow. Like This child is not going to survive the process, but it's going to save who, who knows how many. So here's the question. 
do you do it? Yes? No? I mean, we're uncomfortable now. Would your group, if that's the trade-off, in order to make your, your cause of mortality gone tomorrow, is that worth the trade? Yes? No? How many would say, maybe yes, I'm leaning that way? Some of us. How many would say, mm, leaning no? Okay, some of us. Yeah, we're uncomfortable with this, right? You know why we're uncomfortable with this? Because we have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> we don't have the tools to really think this through. So like you could appeal to, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's terrible to have to sacrifice a child, but we're gonna do it for the greater good. Well, whatever that means. Here's a question. Who gets to define what the greater good is? I mean, none of us are omniscient. We have no idea what the impact of that decision is gonna be 10 years, 50 years, 500 years down the line. And, and why, why me and not someone else? Who, who gets to make that call? Who gets to decide what ultimately is the best decision in, in a case like this? Also, if we're, willing to, if we're willing to say, yeah, I mean, greater good, I don't like it, but yeah, we, we maybe should do it, how, exactly how much child death is acceptable, right? I mean, we're trying to eliminate child death, but if we're willing to sacrifice one, are we willing to sacrifice two, 10, 50, 100, 1,000? Where do we draw the line? And I promise you, anywhere you draw the line is gonna be completely arbitrary. Completely arbitrary. Now here's a thought. If, if you were in, in, out there and you thought, yeah, I mean, I, as much as I don't like it, I would be willing to say, let's, let's sacrifice the life of this one child in order to save maybe millions of lives. Again, here's something, here's a thought. What if that child that was sacrificed turns out to be the next Martin Luther King Jr.? And that impact never happens because they're just not here. We talked about the, the abortion statistics last week. For every, in our country, for every five people you know, you should know a sixth. They're just not there. I mean, what if, what if that one child turns out to be this? Now, for those of you who said, nope, we shouldn't, we shouldn't sacrifice that child. We should let that child live, even though it's going to bring the deaths of, of other children. Well, what if, it's not, what if it's not this? What if that child grows up to, to be the next Hitler? We just don't know these things. When I say we don't know what we're talking about, we don't. And I raise these questions simply to get us to really think this through. Here's the point. When it comes to this question, we are so far out of our depth. Where do you even begin to get some kind of traction on how, how do you even begin to make decisions like this? How do you even begin to evaluate what something in this, in this what the death of a child is relative to something else or another death of a child? None of us are omniscient. None of us understand exactly how to, how to make this work. And I'll give you an example of how None of us can really wrap our heads around the full breadth of it, but we can try. This is, a, this is an objection to Christianity, actually, that comes up out of the Old Testament. How many of you ever heard of the, the Canaanite genocide? It's been brought up of, like, if a good God exists in the Old Testament, like, then why would he order the death of all these men and women and children and animals? Really? Or really, the animals? What they do, right? But it also includes children. And let's look at it. 
I want you to see, we're talking in Genesis 15. These are the people groups that inhabit the land that God is about to give to the Israelites. The Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, all the alphabet suit, right? And later in Deuteronomy, when they get there, the Lord is going to bring you into the land and you're going to take possession of it and you're clearing away the nations. And look, the Hittites, the Girgashites, these same people groups. So just so we're clear that we're talking about the same people, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Deuteronomy 20. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving to you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction. And these are the same people groups. One more, 1 Samuel. Go and strike Amalek. The Amalekites are one of these people groups, one of the Canaanites. Excuse me. Go and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, everything. And people look at this, and we look at this by today's standards, and we go, we know what to call that, right? I mean, that's ethnic cleansing. That's genocide. But the question is, is it really? Is it ethnic cleansing? Are these people being killed because they happen to belong to a different people group? Is God really ordering that? Is that what's going on here? Well, I would submit to you that it's not, and I can give you two reasons why not. In Joshua chapter 6, they get to Jericho. And, they, and then they devoted in the city to destruction, men, women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. They killed everyone. But they didn't kill everyone. Because Rahab the prostitute and her whole father's household and all who belonged to her were saved. And she lived in Israel. She became an Israelite. What about Ruth? She was part of Moab. This is one of those people groups, again, that inhabits the land that God's going to take. Instead of going back with her, to her people and her gods like her sister, she goes with Naomi and says, no, your people will be my people. Your gods will be my God. I'm going to go with you. If this was about ethnic cleansing, we shouldn't read about people like Rahab or Ruth. There are no exceptions to ethnic cleansing. It doesn't matter if you want to be part of the other group. Like, no, you're, you're this people group. We're going to kill you. Also, if this is ethnic cleansing... And how do we explain the animals? Right? It just doesn't fit. It's not neat. It doesn't fit in. There's something else going on here. And I want you to understand that when, you, when we're going to look more closely at it, this is not about who these people were as people groups. This is not about who they were. It's not about the color of their skin. It's not about where they lived. It's not about who they were as a people group or how they identified or whatever. It's about what they did. It's about what they did. And we see this if we go back to the same chapters. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God gives the command, you shall not intermarry with them. And why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Same chapter uh, as the other example, Deuteronomy 20. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so sin against the Lord your God. Genesis, in, in chapter 15, God looks at the, the Amorites, one of these people groups, and says, I could judge them, but out of my mercy, I'm going to wait. They are not as bad as they're going to be yet. And I know that, but out of my mercy, I'm going to wait. But I do want you to understand that because of what's going on here, because of these practices to these other gods, because of this Canaanite culture, is God really a good God if he never steps in? Is he really good if he, if he allows things like 
this to go on forever and ever and ever. So we're going to look at some Canaanite practices. And some of this will bring a little bit familiar because of what we talked about last week. And again, it's tied to idolatry. The reason the Canaanites did these things is because this is what their gods did. And they imitated their gods. Incest. Baal, which we read about in Scripture, one of the chief Canaanite deities, in Canaanite religion, he had, in their, their mythology and their pantheon, he had sex with his sister at the encouragement of his father to humiliate her. And he kept his own daughter in Canaanite mythology as a concubine. We have from Egypt uh, dream books that basically gave interpretations of dreams you had. And according to these Egyptian dream books, if you had an incestuous dream about having sex with your mother or your sister or something, that apparently was a good omen. Guess what was a bad omen? Having a dream about having sex with your wife. Right? Exactly the kind of sex that the Bible describes as, is what God has commanded and set within the boundaries. Well, according to the Egyptians, bad stuff was going to happen if you, if you had those kind of dreams. And I just want us to look at an example from the Bible. What happens after, after Sodom? They leave Sodom. Lot's daughters get him drunk and have sex with him. Where did they get an idea like that in their head? Canaanite culture. They were living in it. They were experiencing it. Part of this, too, is adultery, temple prostitutes, and, and sort of reenacting some of these bizarre sexual rituals that the Canaanites believed that their gods were involved in. Also involved them doing some of the very same things. It was a regular part of Canaanite religion. Very briefly, last, uh, last week, I think, mentions child sacrifice, Molech. Children up to the age of four were placed in the arms of Molech. He's a bull-headed deity over an open fire. He was a bronze, made of bronze, which would heat up. They were placed onto the arms, and they were roasted to death. This is how child sacrifice is. By the way, Solomon set up a, a, an altar to Molech, and participated in this, according to uh, the, the books of Kings. No wonder God was upset, right? This does not belong amongst his people. And just in case we're wondering if, well, maybe uh, this, is, this is just a, a couple people that did this. Well, we also know from archaeology and things like that, they would play drums and horns and flutes during this so that they could drown out the screams so that the people away from the temple wouldn't have to listen to this all day while these children were being sacrificed. And the children knew, right? Children are not, they're, they're smart. They know when their brother or their sister just doesn't come back one day, right? If it didn't happen to them, it would have happened probably to one of their siblings. They were aware. They knew what was going on. We talked briefly about uh, adultery and part of that, but, but specifically homosexual sex was part of the temple rituals involved in a lot of Canaanite religion. And we also get to rape. We know from Solom, Sodom account in Genesis that it, we're not just talking about homosexuality. We're talking about attempted rape of both men, the, the angels, and women, Lot's daughters that he tried to give to these men. And then last but certainly not least, like we covered last week, another big part of Canaanite religion was uh, bestiality. Again, in the mythology of the Canaanite religion, Baal had frequent intercourse with animals, including his own sister, who would take the form of an animal before he would copulate with her. 
I want you to understand that when people frame this, it, it, this as genocide, they have no, they're, they're way out of their depth for understanding what's, what's going on here. This is not genocide. This is capital punishment. And like I said before, at what point is a good God no longer good if he refuses to step in and stop this? This is wrong. This needs to end. All of it. And so that's exactly what God did. And he just happened to use Israel to do it. So what's the point? Why, why bring this up as an example? One is to just say that I think when we think about this, especially the children, we have a very narrow focus. And we're not really grasping the greater context of what was going on in here. So if you look at it from the perspective of the Israelites, there's really only three options. Like, so what do you do with these children? You go in and you're like, well, yeah, the adults, they deserve to die. Like, no one is questioning that. They certainly know what's going on. And even the children can mean, the words there can mean young, young people. We're not necessarily talking about infants here. But when you look at that and you look at these, these young people, these children, what, do you, what are you going to do? Or what do you want the Israelites to do? Are they going to adopt them? You go into your neighbor's house and murder the mom and dad in front of the children and then say, hey, you're going to come live with me now. How do you think that's going to work out when they're old enough to do something about it? Do you think they're just going to be okay with that? Like they're not going to remember? You think even if they're so young, you think they're not going to have questions? I mean, they've done research. My, my wife is, uh, has her background in child development and, and child psychology and trauma and things like that. She's told me about there are There are actually studies that, that get into something called fetal memory, right? That, uh, emotional memory. That before you can even form hard memories, there are... Um, emotions that are sort of laying the groundwork in, in how a baby develops and, and what a child grows up to be. Birth to five is hugely influential in who that person becomes. And if you're growing up birth to five in this context, it's definitely going to have an impact on the experiences, the things that you experienced and heard and saw and witnessed and all that stuff. They can't adopt them. It just doesn't, get, it just doesn't make sense. Not only that, but God said, if, if you take them with you, they're going to influence you. They're going to lead you astray. You're going to worship their gods. And, and guess what? They did, right? So what else do you do? What else could you do? I mean, did you abandon them? So you kill mom and dad, and then you leave and go, well, not going to kill kids. We don't do that. So what? They get to starve to death? Or you, wild animals get to come and, and tear them apart? I mean, what's the, what's the, this is the ancient Near East, right? This isn't like, they don't, there's not a shelter where you can just take these kids. So do you kill them? And again, this is what happens. But I think part of why we struggle with this is because when we think about these children, this is what we picture in our heads. We, we picture the, this, you know, not a care in the world. We picture our kids. Right? I mean, that's really what it is. We picture our kids. You're not thinking of the right kids. We shouldn't be thinking about these kids. We should be thinking about these kids. Because this is the culture that they grew up in. War, death, violence, rape, sexual abuse. And you know that the, the rates of perpetration amongst children who've been abused to turn around and, and abuse other children are extraordinarily high. And that doesn't mean that what happened to them wasn't wrong. It was horrific. But just saying that there's, there's a cycle of abuse that happens from very, very young age with children. 
These are the kinds of children we're talking about. So why does God let children die, even just as that example? Well, let's look at Canaanite culture. Let's look at our culture. Let's look at abortion and some of those things. There's a, there's a reason that accounts for the vast majority of child death. Freedom. And I'm not just talking, although I am talking about people out there who choose to do things to children that result in their death. Like drunk driving, like torture, like abuse, like neglect. All those things. But I'm also talking about the children's freedom. Children have the freedom to climb on top of a house and fall. And the laws of gravity are going to affect them the same way they affect everyone else, right? We all have choices. And unfortunately, lots of times our free choices have a, have a, an out, a bad outcome when it comes to the deaths of children. Freedom is responsible, no matter how, which way you look at it, for the large majority of what we're talking about here. But it doesn't account for all of it. And we'll use uh, the disease as an example, whether it be uh, cancer or some other form of, of disease, horrible disease that kills a child. So, and I just want us to think about it from this perspective. When, when you or anyone else, when we, when we bring up the question, so why did this child who die, die from this disease? Go with me here on this. Why did this child die from this disease? And you can do this with literally anything not just a disease. You're not asking that question just because you care about that child, right? And it's not just this child that shouldn't die from cancer. You don't want any child to die from cancer, right? Right? Okay. It's not just cancer though, is it? You don't think children should die from other diseases, do we? And while we're on diseases, what about accidents? Those shouldn't be fair game either, or murder, or the horrible things that happen to children. So here's the question. Until what age should children be indestructible? Right? This is, this is the, the line of thought that one of my professors took me through, and it's just, I, I wanted to share it pretty much exactly with you because it, I don't know. I mean, when, at what age should children be allowed to die? Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world where two-year-olds are indestructible? You're playing with them, and I have, I have a, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. Imagine like them, they, nothing bad can happen to them, playing with them, throw them up against the wall, and they just bounce off laughing like it's no big deal. What happens when they hit the age, whatever that age is, and by the way, whatever age you pick is arbitrary, once again, what happens when they hit that age? They're going to die within days, because they have not grown up with the tools needed to navigate a world where they need to think about those things, right? So it ultimately boils down to this. What else would you have God do here? We don't like child death. No one does. Of course not. We're not saying that we need to like it. But let's consider the alternatives. What could God have done other than this? God has three options, so far as I can see. He could have created nothing. Certainly solves the problem of evil and the problem of death. It would seem that that's not an option God really likes. God, God wanted to create. God saw his creation was good. And just because bad things have happened as a result of choices does not mean that the plan was, was bad or flawed. 
Now, alternatively, God could create, and he could create robots. But that doesn't seem like the kind of relationship that God's interested in. Is love really love if you can't do otherwise? We have movies about all this, right? And our answer is, nope, it's not. It's not real. It's fake. God is just, God made toys, and he's the one playing with them. Nothing else is real. It's just, it's just him, essentially. Or... God could create the world very much like what we see and experience, where he gives his creatures real freedom to make real choices and the freedom to abuse those choices. And we look at that and we go, well, I mean, that really seems like it is not worth the risk. I mean, look at all the suffering all the evil that has resulted because people have abused their free will. Is free will really worth it? Is it worth the risk? We would certainly have our own take on that. I think God has his own take on that as well. So next week, that's where we're going to pick up. How valuable is free will when you get right down to it? And what's God's perspective on that? And also, and this is where we turn the corner, what good is the suffering that I endure? Is there any good that can come out of my suffering, even possibly? I think there is, and we're going to talk more about that as well. So, I think most of you know the drill by now. If you have a smartphone or something like that, we have another round of pre-work, homework, whatever you want to call it. I use the term homework very loosely, but if you need to write down the URL and access it uh, from a, another computer, you can do that as well. But that is, that's our night tonight. Let me do this, and I, I neglected to do this the last two weeks. I will not neglect to do it again, but let me pray for us before we, before we leave here. Father, you have created a good world. And God, your plan, your intention for your creatures, your imagers, is good. It's wonderful, God. And the, the fact that our, our freedom has been abused, the fact that we have gone our own way, has not surprised you. It has not derailed the plan. There is no plan B. Plan A is the only plan, and you're going, to, you're going to succeed in plan A, God, despite our choices. You are going to have a human family, which is what you created to begin with. You're going to have a human family. And God, thank you for loving us so much that even when we didn't want anything to do with you and left unto ourselves, we still wouldn't that while we were yet sinners, that you sent Christ to die for us, to become sin for us, to bear the penalty of sin for us, so that God, even though we're going to, to die because uh, of the, the result of, of our sin, that God, we don't have to die again, that God, we can live forever with you in your presence because of what you have done for us. Thank you. Thank you for giving us enough information in your scriptures. Thanks for, for leading your people to, to, to think and to write in the way that they did so that we can answer these hard questions. 
And God, thank you most of all for the plan that you have for us, that you, you're not leaving us here. This place is not the end. This is the beginning of an amazing, amazing life to come. And so God, in the weeks that follow, I pray that as we have looked at the depth of our sin, as we have looked at the problem of, of what our choices apart from you have wrought, that God, we would begin now to turn in the next couple weeks to look at the greatness and the height and the breadth and the magnificence of our salvation that you have provided for us. That you would give us a renewed appreciation and a wonder and an awe of who you are and what you have done for us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here, everyone.